it was 475 feet sunk to the bottom of the North Sea, and they salvaged it, and they, they rescued or they they got 81 bodies out of that accommodation, and that six guys that I told you that they decided to stay, they, their bodies were recovered from that module also. Uh. Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Today is simply an amazing episode. Literally one of the most harrowing stories I've ever heard, oil field or otherwise. My guest is Joe Minion. Joe Minion was out on the Piper Alpha platform in the North Sea on July 6, 1988. And I'm so honored that he would come on the podcast today and share that story with you. This is a story you're not going to want to miss. So, Joe, before we talk about um, July 6, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background? What were you doing? How did you get out to uh, the middle of the North Sea? Yeah. Um, I first went offshore in 1982 and uh, worked on a number of different platforms for different uh Different operators, uh, Shell, BP, uh, Chevron, uh, and ended up on Piper Alpha at the start of 1988 uh, in March. March of that year was my first trip on Piper Alpha. So I had about six, six years or so experience offshore with different operators and how they, they worked, their systems, you know, Pretty much the same, but you know, some were more uh, more safety conscious than than other ones. You know. Yeah. No. And so, what were you doing? What was your job out in kind of my platform job, world? Yeah, my job. I I uh, had a number of jobs when I left school, but I went up to the Shetland Islands, which is north of the mainland of Scotland when we were building an oil terminal up there. And I learned, uh, I was a scaffolder there. And gotcha. uh, yeah. So I did a little bit of reading on Piper Alpha. So correct me where I'm wrong, but it was basically a joint venture, I think, between Oxy, Getty, Thompson North Sea, and Allied Chemicals. And like I was saying earlier, it was about 120 miles northeast of Aberdeen. And I think at at kind of the time we're going to be talking about, it was producing maybe 10% of the oil and gas out of the North Sea. So it was a really, really big platform. It sure was. It kind of had an average daily production of 250,000 barrels of oil a day. That was the average. It did hit a peak in 1986, I think it was, of over 300,000 barrels. So if you're looking at an average family car with a 50-litre tank, there's 159 litres in a barrel of oil. You know, it's all just used for calculation now. But uh, So that's over a million cars a day, volume of uh, you know, fluid that was coming out of the yeah, no, yeah, no that that's uh, that's definitely a big, huge platform. And 
kind of my understanding of, of the, the platform was it originally was an oil production only platform and then just regulatory reasons why uh, the North Sea moved away from flaring natural gas. And so gas uh, processing as well as transmission, transportation type facilities were added to the, uh, to the platform over time. Yeah, when the, when the platform first went on location in 1976, the total weight of the platform was 14,000 tons. In 1988, it you know, it, uh, more than doubled to over 34,000 tons, you know, the actual weight of the platform. So it was, you know, how showed you how much more machinery and, uh, you know, added facilities that were, were added onto the platform over the, you know, 12 years or so. So your six-year oil-filled veteran had been out on, on platforms and you go out to the largest or one of the largest offshore platforms in the North Sea. And was, was your time out there kind of typical of oil field like we see in the United States, sort of two weeks on, two weeks off? Is that kind of how things work? And you had multiple yeah, exactly. shifts going Exactly. Yeah, we we were pretty much on day shift, but your your normal kind of day was a fifteen hour day because uh, we had to. We, you know, it was normally based. Well, we should have been based on just twelve hours, but we worked another three hours because it was a shutdown on. You know, that it was a partial shutdown of the platform, uh, and it reverted back to work working in its its first phase as oil only. Piper also received gas and uh, oil from three other platforms in the field, you know, so they, they were feeding Piper with oil and gas. And the main pipeline from Piper ran back to the oil terminal in the Orkney Islands. So the, the Piper Alpha was the, the main, main, uh, main player in that oil field, you know, that was the heart of the, plat the oil field. Got gotcha. So why don't why don't you tell me about what what happened on uh, on July sixth, nineteen eighty eight? Yeah, yeah. It, it just it, you know, although there was enough a lot, it, it was really productive platform. It wasn't the biggest platform I'd ever been on. You know, it's kind of it was just really, you know, very uh, very well positioned, and it really you know. It was producing so much oil. Probably the platform wasn't big enough, you know, for what it, the job it was there to do, you know. Uh, but yeah, uh, on that on that day, the sixth of July was a Wednesday, and uh, we had just worked a normal day, and it was a beautiful summer's day. You get in the North Sea, the sea was quite flat, calm, and uh, yeah, we had. Uh, I was actually coming to the end of my two weeks, Chuck. So, I I don't. We had only one more shift to do on the Thursday, and we'd be flying home on the Friday morning. So we were coming. Let's say come to the end of our two weeks. So the guys I was working with, we knew that the Caddyshack, the film, was on that night in the cinema. So we uh, we went up to watch that. We finished at nine o'clock that night. Went in, got a quick shower changed 
and the, the actual film kind of started just about five past ten past nine you know because they knew people were working till nine o'clock so we sh you know got a quick change and shot up to the uh, cinema to watch Kadishak. we'd maybe been in the cinema 40 minutes or so and uh, yeah i mean the cinema was quite busy because it was a good movie you know and the the platform was full we actually had uh the Tharas uh, which was a semi-submersible uh rig alongside for extra accommodation but the guys went off at night time and went over to the Tharas but so it was really really busy the platform so the cinema was quite busy well it was just a bit full you know and say after about 40 minutes or so we were sitting in the cinema and then you could hear like what I can only describe as like a jet engine really revving up, you know, full full power on, you know, it was such a, a powerful noise. And a silence fell over the cinema because it was, you know, it was totally unusual. It was right out of, you know, nobody would really experienced this before. And then it subsided and the cinema got lively again, you know, and everybody was laughing again, but maybe... Two minutes later, it started up again, but even more intense and more powerful. You could actually feel feel it through your seat in the cinema. And then it was a huge explosion. The whole platform rocked back and forward. Part of the roof of the cinema fell in. The lighting all went off. Some emergency lighting came on then. There was initial panic in the cinema, but then everybody shouted, no, calm down, let's, you know, so get out to the exit and get through into the into the accommodation area. I kind of first thoughts were, let's try and get to our, our lifeboats because that, that was actually our muster station was at our lifeboat also, you know, so that's where you would go. Uh, but it came quite apparent quite quickly that you couldn't get outside. The smoke was too bad, you know, it was too thick and, you, you know, you wouldn't have lasted any time at all outside in that smoke. So tried to, to go to the west side of the platform, tried to go to the east side of the platform. Same. So just kind of after maybe five, six, seven minutes, just seemed to elevate my way up to the to the galley area, which was uh, just under the heli deck, you know, the, where you, you'd get your food and that, you know, and uh, your meal. Meals. Uh, when I got up there, uh, there must have been about a hundred men just sitting in the galley, but sitting on the floor or lying on the floor or sitting with their backs to the wall, getting down, you know, as low as possible. It wasn't quite so bad in the galley at that point. I smoke wise, it was supposed to be a safe area. The galley it had positive airflow, you know, so. It, it was supposed to, you know, let's say, you know, instead of being negative and letting smoke in, it was positive, so it was supposed to keep the, the smoke out. And you were always told and when you'd done your uh, safety survival courses that your first method of evacuation would be by helicopter. So it just seemed to be everybody was up there. But when I got into the galley, there was a, there was a silence in the galley. Nobody was speaking. At all, you know, just and it's, the emergency lighting was still on at that point. But uh, as as I 
got I got separated for the people I was with in the cinema earlier, some of my work colleagues. And just as I got into the cinema, which was double doors you open to get into the, the sorry, get into the galley, a guy came in behind me and shouted, Is there anybody here from Bodens? Which was the name of the company that was doing the drilling, that was the drilling crew on the platform, you know? So I thought, well, that's a good idea. I shouted, is there any scaffolders here? And some of my roommates and some of my other colleagues heard, heard me and recognised my voice and shouted that they were they were actually round the back of the, the galley, just beside the kitchen area. And uh, as I was going over, walking round, stepping over some bodies and that, the OIM, which is the offshore installation manager, was there with the safety officer. And somebody shouted, call and tell us what's happening, what are we going to do? And I think it was a safety officer that answered, says, there'd been a May Day sent out, which there had been, and uh, there should be helicopters here within the next 20 minutes, half an hour to, to rescue us. But as I kind of passed them, I looked back and there was just like a blank look on the, the guys' faces. You know, they were just out their depth as as we kind of all were, like, you know. But as I got round and where my uh, colleagues were now, they were all sitting on the floor or lying on the floor as well. But they had wet dish towel, wet towels over their mouth and nose. Uh, and the, But the smoke was getting more intense at that point also. You could hear actually windows breaking. You could hear other small explosions happening on the platform. So they advised me, there's, there's towels up at the sink, get a towel there and soak it. So I just went up and instinctively got a towel and turned on the tap, but there was no water. It's really starting to sink into me now that, well, if there's no water, there's no power, there's no there'll be nothing to fight the fire with. You know, we're, we're in a real bad situation here. So anyway, there was some water left in the bottom of the sink, soaked the towel, went back down with the guys. And I said, uh, so what's happening? Do we know anything? Do we, does anybody know what we should do? Uh, and I said, no. In this area, there was about 20, 20 of us. And uh, so... Let's see, things were getting more intense, the smoke was getting more intense, then the, the emergency lighting failed as well. And he said, well, if we stay in here and anything else happens, we'll not be in any position to be able to do anything for ourselves. Why don't we go out the back door of the galley and go up onto the heli deck and possibly see if there's any uh see if there's anything we could do for ourselves? So we were sitting there and just looking at each other, we chat, and, yeah, okay, let's go, let's go. So 12 of us, 12 or 14 years left, and just as we were leaving, while well, I was last to leave, there were six guys who were working for a communication company fixing the, you know, the radio systems and the satellite dishes on the platform and stuff like that, and we'd done a bit of work for them, so we knew who they were. And I says to the guys, I says, you guys not coming? And they looked at each other, six of them, and they just said, no, we're just going to stay. We've been told to stay. So I says, okay, well, good luck to you guys. So when we got outside and up onto the heli deck, 
we could uh, we could uh, that that's when we first realised how bad the situation really was, you know, and uh, so we went along, and there was a radio room, like a converted container, that's been it was an office for the helideck landing crew, plus the radio room was in there. We climbed up on top of that because that was the highest point we could get to in that area to try and get ourselves out the smoke. And we were we were lying there, and we could, you could actually see the smoke coming across in in layers. You know, it was like big waves of smoke coming across. So when there was a break in the smoke, we were all standing up and trying to catch some fresh air. Also at that time as well, Chuck, the the Tharos, which was alongside. Uh, you know, as a support vessel. It was, a, it was supposed to be a firefighting vessel also, but it had a water cannon on top of one of the crane booms, you know, right at the top. And this, up till this point, that was the only water cannon that had been in, uh, trained on Piper, and that was just fanning back and forward. So it was actually catching us, and it was a great relief to us, actually, because, believe it or not, I had a great head of hair back in that days, 34 years ago. And so it soaked all our hair, soaked our clothes. And I think that saved myself from being more badly injured, as I'll go on to explain, you know. But when we were up there, and it's only maybe two, three, four minutes, some of the guys, you know, some sincere things what I say to each other and that, you know. And... Uh, but then somebody suggested maybe the Tharos could move closer. It was just getting, you know, ridiculous ideas that was coming out, you know, but and maybe lay the crane boom down on the heli deck and we could climb onto that. It was just real fantasy kind of ideas, you know, desperate ideas to that, you know. So anyway, we went over and the Tharos was off the west side of the platform. And just as we got over, because Piper had like two heli decks, emergency heli deck, and uh, you know the proper heli deck they used. So we got over to the west side of the platform, and uh, that's when the the riser uh, it was a twenty inch pipe gas pipeline from the tartan platform, and that fractured. And that's when you seen you know the huge explosion if you've seen it at all, and uh, yeah, just totally come up and engulfed the platform. Didn't, we didn't actually know what had happened, but everybody had just jumped back the way, people falling on top of you and everything. And uh, then as I got up, I everybody just seemed to disappear. They just seemed to, you know, scatter to four winds, you know. And let me, let me ask anybody you, let, Joe, let yeah. me ask you something just real quick to help kind of visualize the scene. So you're up on the, the heliport there. How many feet above the water is that? You know, it's 175 feet. Okay. So you're, you're looking over an edge, 175 feet down to the water and you're basically just flames are all, I mean, uh, smoke is all around you, uh, at that point. And you'd have your periodic breaks in the smoke where maybe you could see a little bit, but that was, that was kind of it. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So, and it was a short space of time as well, Chuck. You know, it's it only it's only 
22 minutes from the first explosion to the the, the second huge explosion that engulfed the platform, you know, and uh, yeah, I see everybody just seemed to disappear. I myself ran across and there was a radio mast. It was just close by the 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 uh, the heli deck, so I climbed onto that and I was climbing up, up climbing up the ladder, internal ladder on this radio mast. And I was actually going nowhere. I was, you know, I couldn't. If I got to the top, I couldn't go anywhere else. So, but I just slipped at that point, and I just thought to myself, I just thought, well, I just thought, well, that's uh, I'm dead here. That's that's the thought I'd come into my mind. But then just at that same time also, uh, something just took over what I was doing. So I came down the radio mast, which took you down to the level below the heli deck, run along to the access, access stairs that took you up onto the heli deck, you know, if you were leaving the platform or arriving on the platform run across the north side of the platform, the huge explosion had actually cleared all the smoke, you know, that used up all the oxygen, so the smoke had all disappeared. Had a look over, could see the water, because the explosion had cleared all the smoke away. Took my life vest off, threw it over the side, and although I knew exactly what I was doing, it was as if, it was an outer body experience. It was this somebody else was making me do what I was doing. And then I took a few steps back and I had a run because I knew I had to maybe clear the platform to get a, a, as far away because there was overhanging things down below the heli deck. So I took a run. There's safety net around the heli, heli deck. So the supports on that. And I threw myself off as much as I could. And that's kind of when I came back to myself, Chuck, and I, the first thing that came into my head, I don't know if you want to cut this out or whatever, but the first thing that came back into my head was, what the fuck have I done? And then not another, not another thought came into my head till I hit the water, which was roughly, it's, it's between six and seven seconds it took to cover oh that gosh. distance. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, so I mean, you're jumping what, like 150 feet? Is that? It was 175 feet. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Oh my gosh, six to seven seconds. Yeah. And it was really, roughly about that. That. And like I say, not a thought, not another thought came into my head. I never seen a light or anything like that. You know, a, a tunnel or anything. I but I knew. I knew when I hit the water, and, and I went down quite quite deep. I don't know how deep it was, but it took me another two seconds, three seconds to get back to the surface, you know. But I had a reference because I remember seeing the light from the explosion or the fire, so that gave me a reference to get back to the surface. So when I got back to the surface, I had a huge big gulp of air, and. Uh, there was a lot of debris in the water, but floating next to me in the water was a life jacket. And, you know, it could only have been the life jacket I threw in in front of me, I would have thought. It was actually, all the all the lifeboats were stationed at the north end of the platform, and one of them had got blown off 
and the uh, and the explosion. And part of the roof of this lifeboat was floating in the water next to me as well. So I managed to wedge my arm into that and put my other arm through my life jacket. And like I said, it was a beautiful summer's night. 6th of July, you often you often got days like that, you know, it was flat calm. It was and the way the sea was running that night was from south to north. So it was actually taking me away from the platform. If, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? The way the, the sea was running. So I was uh, that was in my favor. Managed to get, I don't know, 20, 30 yards away, whatever. And then I seen the rest of this lifeboat floating in the water. So I disregarded the stuff I had, swam over to the lifeboat, managed to climb it, climb up into the lifeboat. Part of the roof was missing it. I just kind of sat on the edge of the lifeboat and I was looking back at the platform, just trying to take in what I was seeing. And I, I, I just couldn't believe what I was I was watching, you know? And that's actually when I, I looked down at my arms because I only had a short sleeve t-shirt on that night, similar to this. And I had these huge blisters on my arms. And I, I couldn't quite understand how, how I'd managed to get these blisters. You know what I mean? It's just... I couldn't, couldn't figure it out. I wasn't in any contact with flame or anything. I don't know. How did that happen? But also, everything was happening so quickly. There was a fast rescue craft, you know, one of these Z crafts, you know, that uh, in the water it was launched from one of the supply boats that was close by. And they came over to the lifeboat and they put me into the lifeboat. Uh, into their fast rescue craft, sorry, got me out of the lifeboat, put me into the fast rescue craft, lay me along the side of it. And that's actually when my, my injuries started taking effect on me, Chuck, you know. So from then, for the next maybe hour or so, I just mind being in and out of consciousness uh, a few times. Uh, eventually, they took me to the Thados, which had some uh, hospital facilities on it also, you know, some medical uh, and some doctors and medics there, you know. I remember them winching me up on the crane because the spotlights on the crane were shining down on us. I lifted me up on a stretcher, got me into the hospital or the medical facilities on the Tharos, and that was uh, that was uh, doctors had arrived out from Aberdeen by that point, and I just remember one of the doctors saying, "Just well." He needs a shot of morphine, so I got a shot of morphine in my in my backside, and then I could just feel it spreading across my body, and I was kind of okay after that, you know. Wow. So what what's the temperature of the North Sea there? I mean, you, I mean, you you make this harrowing jump, which I never could have done. I'm scared to death of. Uh, of heights you make this harrowing jump but i mean you don't have it's not like the gulf coast where you could float around for a few days i mean it's it's cold isn't it in the north sea yeah yeah maybe what 11 12 degrees centigrade i don't know what's that 40 50 fahrenheit something like that so yeah but yeah but also maybe benefited me in a way also but you know, with the burns I had and that as well, you know, you obviously you want to cool your body down as quick as possible. But, uh, but 
Yeah, I, I wasn't in the water actually that long, Chuck. You know, maybe five or six, seven minutes, something like that. Wow. But yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, hypothermia can, yeah, uh, kick in even, you know, in the, the, the best of weather in the summertime here. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, uh, so it wound up, I think, ultimately 165 people actually died uh, during this tragedy and only 61 people actually survived it. Um, What, what's life been like kind of post that? I can't, I can't imagine trying to emotionally recover from that kind of a harrowing event. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was obviously tough. Uh, We did get, we did get help, you know, from uh, psychologists and stuff like that. Yeah. There was a, a support team I'd uh, I spent six weeks in the hospital with various operations for skin grafts and such like you know but uh, let's say there was people there uh, a professor David Alexander who was quite well known uh, to do with uh, psychology and psychiatric stuff and that you know and uh, he was a great help. He set up a team of uh, like social workers that would, you know, specialise in, you know, in trauma and that. You know, although 34 years ago, post-traumatic stress wasn't really, it was just in its infancy. Maybe then, you know, it was uh, it was just starting to get realised, you know, how, how people can suffer with post-traumatic stress disorder, you know. But uh, I, I was very fortunate, Chuck, that, I had really my first Christmas in nineteen eighty eight at home. I I just I just let it all go. I was just cried for a, what seemed for ages. It was maybe an hour or something, you know. But I just really got it all out because all I could think about was you know, and a few of my friends obviously died there as well. Uh, just about their families, you know, on Christmas Day, and oh, that would be the first Christmas they without them, you know, and yeah, it was quite tough. But I, I really kind of got it out of my system, and then I just kind of maybe actually had a wee looked in the mirror and had a, a talk to myself, you know, and I says, well, if you, if I, well, what I said was, if I hadn't, if I hadn't survived myself. And one of my friends or some of my friends had survived, I would have been wanting them to make the best of a second chance at life that they've had, you know. So, you know, let's put this behind us and, you know, and just try and get on with your life as best you can, you know. So that was a face to face talk in the mirror I had to myself. Yeah. No, I mean, one of our big issues that we've come to learn, you know, about men is our pressure point is the ability to fix something. When we can't fix things, that's kind of what breaks us down. And I think the other thing we've learned over the last, you know, call it 20, 25 years, is that in internal feelings ultimately manifest themselves in one way, shape, or form as shame, you know, embarrassment yeah. and the like. And the only way to get through that shame, unfortunately, is to talk about it. And as men, we just don't do that. You know, I mean, you go get a beer with a buddy, but at the same time, being able to 
to, to break down and share is just not kind of our core competency. And so kind of kudos to you for, for actually breaking down and be, being willing to share that because that is unfortunately the only way we get through events yeah. like this. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there was two suicides chopped from two survivors committed suicide because of the stress of, you know, what happened to them. Uh, survivor's guilt, that was mentioned, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they just couldn't couldn't deal with uh, what, it, what they'd come through, you know, and uh, some of the friends they've lost and stuff like that, you know, and yeah, they just, it was just too much for them, took their yeah. own lives. Yeah, no, so what are the, tell me about uh one of 61 what is the group what are you uh what are you doing with that yeah, well i do some talks uh regarding and what i would call it is i i could introduce myself as a safety impact speaker and tell people about what i've went through and about you know how you know it's affected my life how i've lived with it you know and uh just to get the message across, you know, that it can happen to anybody, anytime, you know, not necessarily working, you know, it could happen even in your own home, stuff, you know, it's, uh, it, yeah, and just getting, it's mostly oil companies and such like that I have done these presentations for, but, uh, yeah, it's just getting that message over that, yeah, it can happen to anybody at any time. And yeah, it's, it's one of one of the things I learned kind of reading a reading about this coming up is one of the issues and I, I'll get this wrong. So correct me was just literally there was a pump, a safety valve that was not supposed to be used. And the communication from one shift to the other just didn't pick that up. And that was that was kind of part of it. Yeah, was correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the the. There was two uh, two condensate pumps, and condensate is a gas that they take out the oil, and then it gets cleaned up, and it was injected back into the oil to transport it back to the oil terminal. And uh, yeah, one pipe, uh, one pump had been isolated. The work hadn't started on that, but on the same same gas line, they took a safety valve off as well. There was two separate permits issued. But they were never cross-referenced with each other. So when Pump B uh, tripped that night, they, they found the permit for the Pump A, realised that the work hadn't started on the actual electric pump. So they started that up, but with the safety valve being taken out, uh, it, it just it was a blank flange. It was just uh, on the on the open pipe work to save any loose impediments getting into the pipework. And it was only hand tightened, so that's where the gas escaped from. You know, that was the noise we were hearing in the cinema. So because, the, let's say, the permits weren't cross-referenced, they only found the permit for the pump. Very, very, uh, yeah, poor, poor uh, communication, like you said, and uh, transfer of transfers between the, the day shift and the night shift operators. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, you know, we're having a lot of discussion today about energy transition and solar and wind folks are fighting with oil and gas folks and, you know, all, all, of, all of this type of stuff. And I, I do think what's lost potentially in, in part of this discussion is, you know, oil and gas is a really, really tough business. Safety really matters. And there's a lot of humanity to it that we, uh, we need to be at least appreciative of for our lights to come on, for our, to be able to get in the car and, and drive down the road and go to the street. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing when you, when you deal with a lot of pressure, it's just very dangerous stuff. That's for sure. Okay. Yeah. That, that was, um, seemed to be back in the day, you know, 34 years ago that it was just get, just get the oil out the ground as quick as they could, you know, that was, yeah. uh, it's, you know, quite amazing that, one of the facts I found out later on is that Occidental had taken revenue of $22 billion or something from 1976 through to, you know, 1988. That's the revenue they'd uh, got out of Piper Alpha alone, you know. Uh, and, yeah, there was... That there was a deluge system on the all the platforms have got deluge systems, Chuck. But uh, it was actually Lloyd's of London done an audit on it, and it was actually condemned. So normally you would have had to shut down the platform uh, till it got all fixed, you know, to to be working properly. Uh, but the Occidental got an exemption from the British government to keep using the keep using the platform and I'll keep the platform in production and got a two-year exemption to get it fixed. So another thing I read too is that the original design of the platform, because it was oil producing producing only, they separated in effect where people would sleep and the oil operations with as much as you can out on a limited space platform. And that when they moved to, I believe it was called phase two, when they went from flaring natural gas to actually capturing the natural gas, that a lot of the construction for the natural gas facilities were put all on top of everything. So this concept of of using some distance to create safety was kind of thrown out. Like the natural gas compressor was right next door to the living quarters or, or however it and that literally they kept the platform running the whole time they did that work where the original engineering was no shut the platform down let's do the work and then we'll bring them in back yeah that's correct and also the modules was eight module a b c and d and uh, the modules were separated by firewall module c was the gas uh gas uh, conversion module and it should really have had uh, blast walls in it, not just not firewalls, you know, but because the, the firewalls, it was, it was, you could put your finger actually through the firewalls. They were just crumbling to bits, actually, you know, it, it was just useless. And what happened from the first explosion in Module C, 
there was debris, you know, missiles that came from the first explosion that uh, fractured crude oil pipes in Module A. You know, it, it was that powerful enough it sent you know, debris and metalwork through and fractured oil pipes in Module A. And uh, that's what fed the fire at the start of it as also, you know. So it was it was just a waste of time really having firewalls. Should have been should have been blast walls. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joe, I really appreciate you uh coming on and sharing this uh story uh with us because this is a, a story that should not be forgotten. And uh, I'll even go on record that I think every oil and gas executive needs to read about this story at least once or twice in their career because safety does matter. Yeah. I, I must say, I, I, earlier this year, I've been down to London three times uh, from, for BP executives and uh, and uh, some of the guys, some of the guys that were there were across from uh, the Gulf of Mexico and that as well, and uh, and these were the top executives, you know, in charge of the whole oil fields and that, you know, and I, I was, uh, I thought that was a great thing that they had done. It's all come from the top, the new uh, chairman of BP, you know, and he's they had me down three times to speak to different groups, you know, and uh, as. As far as I can see from the feedback I got, it was, you know, it was very well received, you know, so if it makes a difference, it's, it's, uh, that helps me a lot as well. You know, I got a lot of good feedback and it was really, you know, it made it all worthwhile doing, doing these talks, presentations, you know, it's, uh, it was a, a great thing. So, Joe, these, these safety talks sound great. Is it something you you do? Could people reach out, get in touch with you for uh, for for these safety talks? Because if I ran an oil and gas company, I'd make sure every one of my people heard you speak. Chuck, well, most of my works come through LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to get in contact with me, it's Joe Meenan, or uh, mostly through LinkedIn, and it's got my details, uh, my email address, and phone number, and such like. If anybody would like to message me, I'm quite happy to engage with them. That's great. Well, again, Joe, I, uh, I appreciate you coming on. This was a this was an amazing story, and I'm a uh, I'm sitting here still, kind of breaking out in cold sweat and shaking a bit. So I'm glad you're still here. Oh, absolutely, yeah, great, great, and maybe hopefully one day we'll meet up face to face, and Bill as well. <laughs> <laughs>